Hello and welcome to the July 5th Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in Annals. First, I hope that listeners in the U.S. had a safe, fun, and relaxing July 4th holiday. And to those listeners who are starting their internships this month, a warm welcome to the medical profession. New interns seeking some inspiration might want to take a quick look at the following. First is an editorial published on July 4th, 2017, titled A Letter to New Interns. Next is a new Annals Graphic Medicine titled Letter to My Intern Self. And last but not least, a new editorial by Annals Deputy Editor Vineet Chopra titled Welcome to the Jedi Academy. Even if you're not a new intern, but you are a Star Wars fan, you might enjoy this last one. Now the other new articles. First is an American College of Physicians policy position paper titled Strengthening Food and Nutrition Security to Promote U.S. Public Health. In the United States, about 10% of the population experiences food insecurity, which is associated with a wide range of health issues. For younger adults, food insecurity has been associated with lower nutrient intakes, higher rates of mental health problems, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and other chronic diseases and poor recorded health, sleep, and health exam outcomes. Food insecure older adults are at risk for lower nutrient intakes, poor reported health, higher rates of depression, and more limitations in activities of daily living. These health impacts can be observed in the heightened healthcare utilization rates and costs experienced by food insecure individuals. ACP says that the United States needs to strengthen its food insecurity response and empower physicians and other medical professionals to better address those social drivers of health occurring beyond the office doors. Specifically, ACP recommends that all persons need to have adequate access to healthful foods and policymakers must make addressing food insecurity and nutritional drivers of health a policy and funding priority. Policymakers need to sufficiently fund and support efforts that aim to reduce food and nutrition insecurity and promote safe and healthful diets. Policymakers should improve the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, known as SNAP, to better serve the needs and health of food insecure individuals and households. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services should develop, test, and support innovative models and waivers that incorporate benefits and activities that address social drivers of health, including food insecurity. Physicians and other medical professionals should undertake activities to better understand and mitigate food insecurity experienced by their patients. And research efforts should strive to better understand the prevalence, severity, and cost of food and nutrition insecurity. The next article reports a cross-sectional time series analysis that finds that disparities in life expectancy compared to white Americans have increased for Black and Hispanic Americans. Researchers from the University of Washington studied death records and census data to estimate life expectancy for selected race ethnicity groups in states from 1990 to 2019. The researchers analyzed life expectancy data for the three largest race ethnicity groups by state, Hispanic, non-Hispanic Black, and non-Hispanic White Americans. They found that although mean life expectancy in the United States increased from 1990 to 2010, it has remained flat since then. The data showed significant differences across race, ethnicity, subgroups between and within states when life expectancy was examined by race, ethnicity groups. Although disparities across states as a whole decreased within each of the race, ethnicity groups studied, disparities across states increased over the past three decades. 
Over the same period, the racial ethnic disparities in life expectancy decreased for most of the 23 states studied, but increased for females in seven states and males in five states. Life expectancy improved, but remained lowest for non-Hispanic Black people in almost every state. An accompanying editorial suggests that the results of this study highlight how stark differences in social and physical environments can drive health, well-being, and risk of death. The authors add that the recommendations made by the White House Equitable Data Working Group and the Policy Statement on Racism from the American College of Physicians are important steps towards increasing access to and availability of the data necessary for measuring equity and inequity across and within all demographic groups. The editorialists call for future research to unpack the complex web of factors driving health and well-being by enabling better understanding of the places where they see persistent health disadvantages an advantage and the state-based explanations for these increasingly important differences determining population risk and resilience. The physician fee schedule plays a dominant role in how primary care and other physicians are paid. However, core features of primary care, first contact care that is continuous, comprehensive, and coordinated, have historically been poorly matched with visit-based payments. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the U.S. have made efforts to address this issue by adding billing codes for these aspects of primary care, including preventive services, such as providing counseling for smoking cessation or weight loss, and for coordination of services, such as providing chronic care management. In the study reported in the next article, researchers used national survey data to explore whether clinicians are appropriately using these codes. The researchers analyzed 34 distinct prevention and coordination codes, representing 13 distinct categories of service. They found that although services were provided to up to 60.6% .6 of eligible patients, billing codes were used at a median of 2.3%. The authors estimate that a single primary care physician could add $124,435 in prevention services and $86,082 in coordination services to their practice's annual revenue if they use the appropriate codes for all eligible patients. According to the authors, the results suggest that having to navigate the eligibility, documentation, time, and component requirements of numerous separate codes may be too high of a hurdle to warrant the effort to use prevention and coordination codes. They also note that these codes involve decomposing the care of a patient into parts with multiple steps and checklists which may be inconsistent with how primary care physicians practice and document their care. And staying on the topic of primary care, over the last four decades, many efforts have sought to improve the delivery of primary care. Each practice improvement initiative has promise and so sometimes significant evidence for efficacy to improve care for the single disease or process targeted. Yet implementation requires time, training, possible practice redesign, and growing administrative burden. Initiatives may also require extensive patient education to manage or reframe expectations. These efforts may yield additional payment, but often they are not commensurate with the administrative burden required to garner the remuneration. Next is a commentary that argues that at a time when patients require whole person care to improve well-being, efforts to improve narrow processes in the primary care setting may instead lead to fragmented care and clinician burnout. It has been hypothesized that case management programs assisting patients with social needs may improve health and avoid unnecessary healthcare utilization, but their effectiveness has not been well studied. Next is a large clinical trial that studied the population level impact of a case management program designed to address patient social needs. 
Study participants were enrolled in Contra Costa County, an economically and culturally diverse community in the San Francisco Bay Area, between August 2017 and December 2018, and followed for one year. Over 49,000 adult Medicaid patients at elevated risk for avoidable healthcare utilization were randomized to intervention or control arms. Persons in the intervention group were offered 12 months of social needs case management, which provided more intensive services to patients with higher demonstrated needs. Outcomes of interest were emergency department visits and inpatient admissions. The trial found no difference in emergency department visits or avoidable hospitalizations, but about a 10% decrease in total hospitalizations. Of note, only 40% of the intervention group engaged with the program. These findings suggest that social needs case management programs may have the potential to lead to reductions in hospital utilization, but they must be appropriately targeted so that persons at risk for healthcare choose to take advantage of the programs. Although the population level differences between estimated and measured glomerular filtration rate are well recognized, the magnitude and potential clinical implications of individual patient level differences are unclear. Next is a cross-sectional study that aimed to quantify estimated glomerular filtration rates individual level accuracy. The researchers analyzed data from 3,223 participants participating in four community-based research studies who had measured GFR and then calculated estimated GFR from serum creatinine alone and with cystatin C. Regardless of whether GFR was estimated with creatinine alone or with cystatin C, there was substantial discrepancy between estimated and measured glomerular filtration rates for individual persons. The authors urged caution when using estimated GFR in clinical decision-making. Living practice guidelines are increasingly being developed to provide clinical recommendations that are responsive to rapidly emerging evidence. This is especially true in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Analysis published a number of such documents. Yet guidance about how to best develop living guidelines has yet to be established. A research and reporting methods article aims to address this problem and reports an effort to develop a framework to characterize the process of development of living practice guidelines in healthcare. The authors base the framework on three background reviews, a scoping review of methods papers, a review of handbooks of guideline producing organizations, and an analytic review of selected living practice guidelines. The core team drafted the first version of the framework and then refined it through surveys of and discussions with multidisciplinary international stakeholders. A major principle of the resulting framework is that the unit of update in the living guideline is the individual recommendation. In addition to providing definitions and describing the context of living guideline development, the framework addresses several processes. The planning process should address the organization's adoption of the living methodology, as well as each specific guideline project. The production process consists of initiation, maintenance, and retirement phases. The reporting should cover the evidence surveillance timestamp, the outcome of reassessment of the body of evidence when applicable, and the outcome of revisiting of a recommendation when applicable. The dissemination process may necessitate the use of different venues, including one for formal publication. The framework falls short of proposing practical guidance for how the described concepts would be best implemented, but presents a useful preliminary step to help guideline developers plan, produce, report, and disseminate living guidelines. 
A few weeks ago, Annals published a systematic review that demonstrated the effectiveness of contraception counseling, accompanied by an editorial that I wrote urging internal medicine physicians to systematically incorporate contraceptive counseling into their practices. The need for easily accessible, effective contraception in the U.S. has gained increased urgency in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. The last new article I'll highlight is a commentary that calls on hospitalists to offer contraceptive counseling to patients of childbearing age, regardless of the reason for hospitalization. Nearly half of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended, and unintended pregnancy is associated with worse outcomes. Access to contraception decreases rates of unintended pregnancy and abortion. However, not everyone has access to contraception because of financial barriers, widespread misperceptions about family planning, regulatory and geographic barriers, and availability of prescribing clinicians. These challenges disproportionately affect low-income persons and people of color. Hospitalists frequently take care of patients of childbearing age, especially since the concurrent epidemics of COVID-19, substance use disorders, and obesity, and the resultant health complications among younger persons result in hospitalization. As such, the authors argue that family planning services should be part of hospitalist care, even for hospital admission for non-gynecologic reasons. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you return in two weeks for the next one. And again, although you may currently be too overwhelmed to listen to a podcast, I wish the best to everyone starting their medical internships this month. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Bernie Turner, and Andrew Langman for their technical support.